to Romans chapter 9, and we are going to polish off this chapter today. I know it's shocking. I know it's shocking, and probably you're still uh, got some doubt in your heart on that. We will trust the Lord to that end. Romans chapter 9, and we're going to cover verses 30 through 33 in our time today. Paul says in verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we worship you together this morning. We have loved worshiping you in song, drawing our attention to who you are, pondering who you really are, who you reveal yourself to be to us, and worshiping you. We lift up your name and we honor you and we declare that you alone are God. There is none besides you. We worship you. You are worthy of our time and our attention and our lives. You are worthy of all that we are and you are worthy of all praise. And Father, we have already confessed this morning, but we want to do so again, that we have not honored you the way we ought to this week. Your command is to love you with all of our capacity, and we have not done so. Your command is to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we have put ourselves first. We confess this as sin, and we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would be at work in our service even this morning where we celebrate your mercy and grace towards us. So, Father, as we open your word and as we read and discuss these verses, pray that you would add your blessing to the preaching of your word, that you would do your work in our hearts even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I graduated high school, I was uh, given a very special and great uh, graduation gift. It was a combination TV VCR. Okay? It was about this big. And it was the greatest thing ever. And I watched that thing to death, and then it died. And uh, after it died, I thought, I'm a relatively smart guy. I'll just fix it, right? And so I crack open the housing. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I start looking in there, and there are wires, and there are plastic little gears and gizmos. And, and I looked at it for a while, and I took it apart even further, and I thought, well, uh, I don't see anything obviously broken. <laughs> You know, nothing, nothing is, uh, I don't see snapped wires or something that I would recognize as being a problem. And I looked at it for a while and I was utterly confused. And, uh, of course, I couldn't solve the problem. 
And then I decided I'd put it back together, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I wasn't able to get it all back together, right? Uh, I did finally get it boxed back into the same housing, and I snapped the housing closed. But, of course, not everything was connected the way it ought to be. It went back in a box. It went in the closet, and that was the end of that, right? <laughs> and so that was my experience with uh, TV repair. It, it didn't go very well. The point is that I would never have guessed at the complexity and the detail of all of the inner workings of a TV-VCR combo. I mean, it's pretty easy, right? You grab the remote and you press the button, it turns on, you press play, and it plays. It's really simple, right? Well, I, of course, was uh, in for a rude awakening when I saw all the wires and the gears and the clips and the things I don't even know what to call, the gizmos inside this thing. And um, I was shocked. I thought, surely just I can figure this thing out. I could not figure that thing out. What was inside the housing when I opened it up was, was baffling to me as a layman. Well, today's passage is a turning of a corner in Paul's argument. He has been talking about a particular subject for chapters and chapters and chapters. He's been talking about salvation and how salvation works. And if you've been counting, and I doubt that you have, but you could, if you've been counting, the last time the word faith or believe occurred in connection with salvation was chapter 5 and verse 2. We're at the end of chapter 9. Now, there's one exception in chapter 6 and verse 8 where the word believe occurs, but it's not directly related to how salvation works. Before chapter 5 and verse 2, the word occurred 39 times. It was a common theme. It was something that we were to be learning about. It was something we were to be focused on. And then, after 5-2, for the next five chapters, that one time, and it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. What is going on? What has Paul been doing? That half the book, he would spend talking about faith, and then he would stop cold and press on. Well, I believe that it's important for us to understand why he does that. I believe it fits in with the argument that he's been making. The argument from chapter 5 to the present has been about the inner workings of salvation. Paul had been talking about how we are saved and, and our access to it and that salvation is, is by grace through faith and those sorts of things. And he talked about examples from the Old Testament and etc. But when he cracked open the housing to show us what was going on inside, suddenly his vocabulary changed. Suddenly he was talking about something slightly different. His focus in these last chapters has not been the means by which that salvation is received. The subject these last five chapters has been the inner workings, the gizmos, the mechanisms, how the thing works. And so if you flip back very briefly and look at chapter 5 and just kind of walk our way from from chapter 5 to the present, you, you, you see his description. We're not going to go into detail. I've spent a long time going into detail on this already. But just to, to, by way of refresher, the end of chapter 5 there is a beautiful picture of the death that was ours in Adam versus the life that is ours in Christ. 
That's foundational. That is crucial for us to understand what is going on there, that, that we were dead in Adam, but in Christ we are made alive. And then into chapter 6, we, we are now dead to sin and alive to God because we died with Christ. The end of chapter 6, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. And then on into chapter 7, we see that we have been released from our bondage to the law of works and have become bound to Christ instead. And then, of course, that famous uh, half chapter, the second half of uh, Romans chapter 7, we find that sin is still lurking. Although these things are true of us, sin is still lurking in our lives. It's lurking in our flesh. And so Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we get into that great and encouraging chapter 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why is there no condemnation? How can there be no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Well, it's because Christ has fulfilled the law and he's condemned sin in the flesh. He's entirely changed the stakes. He's moved us into an entirely new category. In the second half of 8, now we are heirs with Christ. We've received adoption as sons and we will be glorified with him. And even our suffering that we experience in this present age has been given to us by the good God who loves us for our good that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And ultimately, we will be delivered into glory. God is for us. No one could be against us. That's the encouraging news of the end of chapter 8. In Christ, we can never be condemned or lost. And it's as if these four chapters have been the doctrinal treatise on salvation. We've, we've, we've looked inside the housing. We've seen how the gears and the gizmos work in there. Well, then he turns in the beginning of chapter 9 to how we see this playing out, how he sees it playing out in his context, that, that salvation is being unevenly and unexpectedly applied more broadly to Gentiles than to Jews, which is what he would have expected perhaps or what his Jewish audience would expect Well, how can that be? The Jews were the ones who had received promises in the Old Testament. They had been given promises by God of what would happen. But he says God has been orchestrating the grand scope of history as well as the salvation of individuals to bring about the salvation of Gentiles too. And not only the Jews. This is God's prerogative. It's his purview. And it always has been. So that brings us to today's passage at the conclusion of chapter 9. And it's as if Paul closes the housing and turns to us to explain for us what we've looked at, what we've seen. Just as I wish someone would have explained to me what I saw when I opened up the housing in that TV VCR, Paul turns and explains for us what has been going on. And so... With that as the background, with that as the backdrop of what's going on, we come to our passage today in chapter 9 and verse 30, where we read about a surprising success. This this paragraph is given in in language that's a little bit like a race. It's it's race kind of language, with the, the talk of the goal that you're running towards, the finish line, with talk of competing, with with uh, uh, pursuing chasing after, and the reward that you receive. So it's, it's almost language of a race that he's talking about here. And so he starts off by talking about a surprising success. He says, what shall we say then? 
He's summarizing what has come before, what his, his argument and what he's been saying, uh, particularly about the Jews and Gentiles. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. The Gentiles who weren't even in the race, they weren't running after that prize, have attained it. For the most part, if you read through the Old Testament, you read through the history of God's working uh, in the nation of Israel and his working throughout the course of the Old Testament, the nations around Israel have been, for the most part, on the outside. And we can't even say that they were really on the outside looking in because they didn't really care, for the most part, what was going on in Israel. They didn't care about God's relationship with his people, for the most part. They were on the outside doing their own thing. They had their own gods. They had their own morals. They had their own ethics. They had their own concerns. And they had their own ways of worshiping, ways of praying, etc. And so they weren't really all that concerned, for the most part, about what was going on in Israel. They, they were not pursuing righteousness. They weren't even in the race. Not pursuing righteousness. And yet he says, what shall we say? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. They've attained it. They crossed the finish line. They've gotten the prize. I have an image in my, my head of all the days of cross-country that I ran, and I never enjoyed a single step of it, so I'm not sure why I ran cross-country for two years. But I, I could just imagine as I'm trudging along, trying to finish this race, that some guy comes on and, and just finishes and beats me, right? That's kind of what it feels like. They weren't even pursuing righteousness, and yet they attain the goal. As you think through the book of Acts, it's a little bit surprising what happens throughout the book of Acts, that you have the church at the beginning. Acts is the description of the, the early years of the church and what the apostles were doing, what, more importantly, what the Holy Spirit was doing, uh, continuing to do through the apostles uh, there in the growth of the early church. But you have the church at the beginning is entirely Jewish. And then you see throughout the course of the book of Acts that fewer and fewer Jews are responding and more and more Gentiles are responding. So that by the end of the book of Acts, you've got this Situation where Paul would go into a new town, he'd preach in the synagogue for a while and be run out pretty soon, and he'd minister for months amongst the Gentiles. And by the end of the book, you have the, the Jews again rejecting their Messiah. So you have a greater and greater portion of the church becoming Gentile, and fewer and fewer Jews responding. Gentiles continue to experience God's favor in Christ in increasing numbers. And Jews continue to reject Jesus. So he says, what shall we say then that Gentiles who didn't even pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. Not pursuing righteousness, the Gentiles attained the goal. And how did they do it? They attained the goal by faith. They weren't even pursuing righteousness, and yet they attained righteousness. And the righteousness that they attained was by faith. And this righteousness that he's talking about here is, has less to do with a personal subjective lifestyle of righteousness. That's a legitimate topic. That's a legitimate use of that word. That's just not what he's talking about here. He's talking about righteousness in the sense of acceptance with God. 
that God would declare you to be righteous. It's a declaration by God of them being righteous. And what he says here is that the Gentiles attained that for which they weren't even seeking. They attained righteousness. And how did they do it? They did it by faith. Of course, this is nothing new to us. If we go back to chapter 3 of Romans and look at verse 21, we can see how it is that they could be righteous, be declared righteous by faith. We have the same thing discussed in chapter 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. A lot of big language and a whole lot going on in those verses. But the point is, the righteousness that is acceptable to God is ours only by faith in Christ. Because Christ himself was righteous in his life and dies in our place so that we have our own sin forgiven in him. We have his righteousness credited to us. And how does all that happen? By faith. It's by faith. And so we see that this has been alluded to before. It's nothing new. He's just returning to the same topic. Well, he develops it even further in chapter 5. He says, chapter 5 and verse 18, 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Death is ours because of Adam, because we are born in Adam. That's what we inherit. That's what we are born with is that penalty, that sin curse upon us. And the only way we can have it removed, the only way that we can have righteousness acceptable to God is, is for Jesus to do it. He does it for us. And then by faith, we are connected to him. And that righteousness is credited to our account. And what Paul says back in chapter 9, what Paul says is the Gentiles are the ones who have benefited from this. The Gentiles have benefited enormously. They weren't even pursuing righteousness at all. And they end up attaining the goal. They end up being declared to be righteous by God because of faith in Christ. And so what a surprising success that you have those who really weren't even part of the race. They've attained the goal. Well, of course, he's not done there. He moves on to talk about a shocking failure. He says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. That Israel, while pursuing law for righteousness, failed to reach it. Israel had received the law. They had received revelation from God, and more specifically, they had received the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, Moses, 
And the law says, do this and live. And so the best of the Jews set about trying to do this so that they could live. And that became the focus, was doing that law, a law that would lead to righteousness, a a law that if you obeyed, that if you did what the law required, you would receive that reward from God, you would receive that statement from God of a declaration of righteousness. And so that's what they set about to do. They set about to do that law. It was like a map that they were to follow to show them what to stay away from, what to pursue. But they end up giving more attention to the map than they did to their destination. About 10 years ago, 10 years ago now, we took a missions trip. And we went back east and we went to Philadelphia and New York and New Jersey and did some ministry for a couple of weeks. And you, many of you remember that time. Well, I was fresh back from Russia. And uh, we, had, we had been back from overseas only about six months. And so I wasn't used to driving in big city USA. I was used to driving in Russia. And uh, I wasn't used to driving by GPS. So here I am driving in these big cities, and I'm using a GPS, and I wasn't used to that either. And I was so focused on this GPS that I took wrong turns again and again. I don't, I don't know if you remember that time when you were just getting used to using GPS, but I would be driving down the freeway and it would say turn right and my instinct was to turn right now like into the 7-Eleven that was right there. Or, 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 or did it mean up here at the light? Or did it, what did it mean? I didn't know. And so I was uptight the whole time and we had to turn around quite a bit because I would turn right into places that it was one way or the other way. You know, I was so wrapped up in what the GPS was saying, though the directions the GPS gave were perfect. But I didn't have the awareness of what was going on around me to be able to use those directions appropriately. And so the poor people riding in my vehicle ended up taking a lot of wrong turns and risking our lives because I was following this GPS. I was getting the correct directions, but I was so focused on those directions that I was unaware of the larger context that made sense of those directions, that made sense of actually where we were headed, what our destination was. Well, Israel was so focused on the directions of the law that few of them bothered to lift their eyes to look at the destination, to look at where the law was meant to take them. And so while pursuing a law for righteousness, Israel does not attain their goal. Verse 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They had the right directions, they had the law, but they didn't arrive at the intended destination. They were so focused on the map that they didn't see where it was intended to take them. They weren't seeing the larger context that would make sense of all of those instructions. What do I mean by that? How does that even make sense? Well, here's how that makes sense. Israel was, in most ways, far more moral than the nations around them, far less sinful in many ways. They weren't pursuing the kinds of things often that the nations around them were pursuing, but they didn't arrive at the kind of righteousness that would ultimately be pleasing to God. Well, how can that be? How can it be that they had the right map and they were focused on doing what the map said, and yet not arrive at the destination. How can that even be? Well, he answers that. They didn't succeed in reaching the law. Verse 32, why? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They pursued it by works, not faith. They thought it was for them to do. And, and how many people in your own life, and maybe how many people in this room think that being right with God is a matter of cleaning yourself up? Doing what the map says. The map says stop lying. Okay, so I will stop lying. And when I stop lying and I do so adequately, somehow God will be satisfied with me. He will declare me to be righteous. How many, how many think that that's what God requires? How many think that that is the way to know God, the way to have peace with God, is to clean up our act? And how many people think that they are able to? That they are able to do what it takes? That God somehow grades on a curve or, or His standard is low enough that in some way I can do what He requires to measure up The problem is that God's standard of righteousness is perfection. Past, present, and future. Perfection is His standard. Not just some kind of good enough. Not just, yeah, a little bit more than not. His standard is perfection. And the Jews and the vast majority of people around us, maybe even possibly some in this room, think that what God is telling them to do is clean themselves up in order to be acceptable to God. Just, just wipe off most of the grime. Just, just wash your face. It doesn't really matter what you smell like. Just clean up what you can, and God will accept you as you are. God will be happy with you. Well, that's what the nation of Israel was doing. Israel pursued the law, a law that promised them righteousness, so that had they done the law... Had they kept it perfectly, would have yielded righteousness. But they pursued it based upon works, not based upon faith. And that is because of the stumbling stone. That's where the stumbling stone comes in. There's a problem here. There's a very significant and serious problem that makes it so that a person cannot be justified based upon works. That, that makes it so that a, a person cannot measure up to God's standard of perfection based upon their works. And that problem, of course, is their own sin. It's their own sin. Not, Not only the things that we have done or the things that we do that are displeasing to God. Paul has been laboring to point out to us that the things that we do that are displeasing to God come from who we are. And so even if we could escape doing those things that are displeasing to God, the fact is those things come from, they are sourced from within us. And so the problem is not only the things that we do. The problem is the sin that is within. And that's why we have Jesus. That's why we're introduced to this stumbling stone. He says, he says here in verse 32, why is this that they, that they stumble, that they didn't achieve it, though they were seeking after it? Why could they uh, get distracted by the map and not see where they were going? Well, it's because they did not pursue it by faith, 
but as, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That stone was placed there by God. Placed in their way, as it were, by God. Well, why would God put the stone there? To trip them up? Well, the stone is in reality a gift. Because as they continued to try and follow the directions, as they continued to make the right turn when the GPS said to make the right turn, as they continued to try and do what God said they should do, what should they have learned? They should have seen in technicolor their own failure. And that failure should have alerted them to the fact that they could not do that law because of the, their taint that they had within them, because of that sin that was deep within their heart, because they are born from Adam, they were not able to keep that law. So that's the first thing they should have seen is, I break this law continually. I don't do it. God's standard is perfection, and I'm coming in somewhere down here. Again and again and again. They should have seen by observing their attempts to keep the law that I simply cannot do this. I can't clean myself up adequately to please God. I can't wash my face enough. I can't put on enough deodorant. I can't make myself acceptable to God because His standard is perfection. And by the way, I've already been imperfect for lo these many years. They should have realized their own inability. And then as they thought about the law more and as they thought about the fact that the law not only commands them to do these things, but the law also provides for offerings and sacrifices for when we don't do those things. They should have been primed to begin to look for an offering, a sacrifice that would take away sin, not just for today, not just for this month or this year, but for an offering that would take away sin perfectly. They should have been primed by looking at the law and by their attempts to follow it. They should have been primed to look to God for an ultimate deliverer. Someone who would be obedient. Someone who would earn God's righteousness. Someone who would pay a penalty, an ultimate penalty, so that they could have forgiveness of sins. This is what they should have seen by looking at the law. Examining the law closely, trying to do the law, that's what it should reveal to us. Not just to ancient Israel, but to us as well. When we look to God's law, we went through the Ten Commandments extremely briefly last week. And we had a particular focus for doing so. But as we go through there, and as you meditate on God's law, one thing it ought to reveal to you is, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't measure up. I, I don't keep any one of those ten perfectly. I cannot do that. And if it were up to me, I could not attain righteousness in God's sight. I could not meet His standard. But God gave the stone, who is simultaneously a gift, put there by God, and a stone of stumbling. Why is He a stone of stumbling? As it is written, Behold, I am laying... In Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of, rock of offense. Why is he a stone of stumbling? 
He's a gift. Why would that trip anyone up? Well, it trips up many, many people. Why? Because Jesus, the stone, is a reminder to you and me that we don't make the grade and could not make that grade. That I am a failure in God's sight to measure up to his standard. And I don't like that. My pride doesn't like it. And the unbeliever, when he hears that, doesn't like that. That part of our message to them is, sorry, buddy, you don't measure up. That's not going to sell well. That's not going to play well on TV, right? Imagine if one of our presidential candidates said, I I don't measure up. That's my baseline requirement. (laughs) My baseline uh, selling point is that I don't measure up. No one likes to hear they don't measure up. And the gospel says the rock, the stone that God has placed there is like a billboard that says you don't measure up to God's standard. You don't do it. And that's offensive. Just give me the map, please. Just show me the path. Tell me what I can climb, what I can do. Or like Jesus said to the Jews in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you would have life. Just, just give me the map. Just let me look at the map. I'll keep banging my head against the wall. I'll keep trying. I'll keep seeking this way. I don't like to be told I can't do it. I don't like to be told that I am inadequate. And the Jews, like so many unbelievers, had the Jews had set their hope on Moses, the law, and many unbelievers, though they don't know a thing about Moses, they set their hope on measuring up, washing their face, cleaning up, becoming acceptable to God somehow. And they refused to believe in Christ to whom Moses pointed. The Jews are tripped up in wanting to do for themselves rather than admit that they could not do it themselves and instead look to Christ who accomplished that work. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The the stone is put there as a gift and so many trip right over that stone. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. It's offensive. What do you mean I can't do it? Watch me. Just watch me. But that stone that is intended to be a gift that is put there by God that ends up being a stone of stumbling, he's actually a savior from from shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, I, I don't know much about this. I have heard, and you're familiar with dreams where you're in public but you're not dressed for public? You're familiar with those dreams? Uh, they're not fun. Psychologists tell us that they, they indicate to us that we have some sort of sense that, feeling that we are unprepared for what's coming, whether it's a test or whether it's something difficult coming up, that we're unprepared. We're feeling like we're unprepared in some way. And so, like Adam and Eve, who what happened... When God showed up, they felt ashamed. They knew they were naked. They ran and hid in the woods. Right? And so that's the image that's being used here. That's the idea of being put to shame is being unprepared for judgment. Being unprepared for the ultimate test when God looks and scrutinizes your life. 
But the glorious thing about what he says here is whoever believes in him, this stone of stumbling, this rock of offense, this Christ, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It it seems so easy, doesn't it? When we're sitting here together and you think, oh, when I talk to that unbeliever and when I explain what's going on, that look, buddy, you can't measure up to God's standard of perfection, but here is Christ who measures up to God's standard of perfection. He's a gift to you. And anyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Believe in Him. And and what does the unbeliever so often hear? What are you saying? I can't do it? You saying I'm not strong enough? I'm not good enough? You saying I'm I got something wrong with me? And that's the offense. That's the offense. And that's so often the offense that we take. And Paul says, This explains what has been happening with the nation of Israel that so many of the Gentiles are believing that they're experiencing God's favor. Though they weren't even pursuing righteousness, they end up attaining righteousness by faith in Christ. And here the Jews who've been pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness, they've been following the map, they've been working the plan, and they end up not being righteous before God. They miss it. They don't attain it. Why? They stumble over the stumbling stone. And how often is that the case? We, we live in a community that is largely uh, Mormon. Uh, largely. There are many Mormons. There are many others of other faiths and some who don't know what they believe. But when you present the gospel, this message is offensive. And you think, how could that be Offensive that God would give His own Son to do this because you can't do it. And you find that offensive. You get hung up on the part where it says you can't do it. So we get offended, we turn away, and we keep struggling. We keep trying. We keep working. We keep doing. We keep banging our head against the map. Jesus is the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. And He is the Savior who saves from shame. He's the gift. He Himself is that very a gift that is so, is that very gift that is so offensive to the world. He's the very one who can save us from that shame, from that panic, from that scrutiny by God in our lives to judge you based upon what you've done. What will be your eternity? To have God rooting around in your life and uncovering all the stuff that you would rather have covered up. That panic. Ah! He's the Savior from that. So that no one who believes in Him will be put to shame. In Christ, we are never unprepared for that judgment. In Christ, we will never experience that panic of facing judgment unprepared. That's what's going on here. That's the message to you and to me, by the way. The, the, The greatest application from our passage today is to believe in this stone who is a gift offered to you. Don't be offended at the part that says you can't do it. Rejoice in the fact that it continues beyond you can't do it. To say, and Christ did it. And He can be yours. 
by faith alone. Believe in Him. Believe in Him. And His righteousness, His obedience, will be given you in place of your disobedience. And the death that He died on the cross that we're going to celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that death which was a righteous death, He, he had no reason to be there. He was not paying His own penalty. He was paying the penalty for my sin. That I might have forgiveness. That in Christ you might have forgiveness as well. And so, I don't, I don't want anyone here to end up in that place of those Paul is talking about here who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness and ended up not attaining to that law and therefore not attaining to that righteousness. Who will face judgment day on their own merits. I don't want anyone here to have that. I don't want anyone here to be in that situation. I don't want anyone to, to try to continue living life as if we must earn God's favor by the things that we do. Let me remind you God's standard is perfection. Christ has perfectly obeyed. And He offers that obedience. The credit for that, He offers the righteousness of that to you. It's yours by faith. So my prayer is that you will believe, even this morning, if you have not done so already, that you will trust in Him, that you will realize, I don't want to face God's judgment on my merits. But I have the rock. Yeah, He's offensive to some. He's a stone of stumbling to some. He's a gift to me. Because I do not have what it takes to measure up to God's standard. And so, as we conclude chapter 9, it's, it's Paul closing up that housing and saying, now let's step back and see again what happens when I push that button. What happens when the thing is working, when salvation works. I don't, I don't get all the gizmos and the gears and all the stuff inside. But if you will put your faith in Christ, if you will trust in Him, knowing that you do not have what it takes, knowing that you are flawed, you are inadequate in yourself to measure up to God's standard. If you will trust in Christ for that, you will find full forgiveness. You will find full righteousness in Christ that's yours so that, so that you stand in God's presence, not in panic, not in fear that God's going to scrutinize your life, but in joy that He's going to scrutinize Jesus' life and give you the credit. What a glorious thing this gospel is that it can be difficult to understand. And we've talked about some hard things. We've, we've, uh, we've spent a while talking about this. You know, I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the sermon that the last time we talked about faith, the last time Paul talked about faith was in chapter 5 and verse 2. That was over a year ago. That was over a year ago. So we've spent a long time rooting around in there trying to figure out how this thing works because Paul does so, and that's a good thing for us to do. It's also a good thing for us to close it back up and stand back and say, that is amazing. Maybe it's even mysterious, but I believe in that Jesus. I believe in that one who obeyed for me, who died for me, that now I get to be in him and become a co-heir with him being adopted as God's own child. So as we come to the Lord's Supper today,
You've got the elements. We're going to celebrate what Jesus has done. We're going to celebrate by means of the Lord's Supper the the moment when this was accomplished for you. When payment was made for you. That you could be brought into right relationship with God because of what Christ has done. And it is ours by means of faith. And so, of course, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is something for Christians to do. This is, this is uh, something that Christians are reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. For the person who doesn't know Christ, just, just let this time pass and, and kind of listen to what's being said and ask me questions or someone else questions later on. But this is for Christians to celebrate our Lord, the stone of stumbling who is so offensive, who is a gift to us. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So you've got your elements, you've got the bread, you've got the cup. We celebrate this together. This is, this is like a promise from God to us. It's like us, it's a picture, it's a tactile picture of us partaking in, benefiting from what Christ has done for us as we eat his flesh and drink his blood, as it were. Paul says, because first we come to the bread. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you sent your son, who is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, who trips up so many because he's an ever-present reminder of what is good and true in the end that we cannot measure up, that we cannot fulfill your standard, your requirement. But Jesus has completely and finally and perfectly and already fulfilled your requirement on our behalf. And we think of this bread, which represents the body of Christ given for us. In our place, he died. We should have been there. It should have been our bodies. It should have been us being scrutinized, bearing your wrath, but it was him. And so we celebrate that Jesus, your son, gave himself for us on that tree. Pray in Jesus' name. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. Paul continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands the cup, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, that we have 
a new relationship with you. That we have been brought into peace with you because of Christ and what he's done. That we now are included in him so that his righteousness is our righteousness. So that his death for sin is our death for sin. And thus, we are co-heirs with him. We have right relationship with you. We have been adopted as your children because of Christ. Because of him giving his very life's blood for that purpose. We rejoice. We are grateful that we've been brought in, that we've been made your own, and we, we uh, will not have to face that judgment for our own merit. We will not be faced with your wrath because Jesus himself has taken it, paid it. He has put to death sin in the flesh. He's obeyed your law fully. And that's credited to us. We rejoice and we thank you for Jesus' life blood given for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul concludes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray for us in a moment, and then when I'm done praying, there's going to be a family who will come up front to pray with you if you would like to bring prayer requests to them or praises, or if you have more questions about what it means to know Christ, bring those questions to them or to me, either one. I would remind you also that we have a service this evening, at 6 o'clock. We've been getting done right at 7 o'clock. We would love to have you back here. It's a it's a quieter, more intimate time for us to be able to worship together. Before we take off, let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this salvation, and there is a lot to think about in it. And we have been shown the inner workings, and we perhaps didn't comprehend all of it. Perhaps uh, it's very difficult for us to think our way through, but we rejoice in the fact that you have accomplished salvation for us. We rejoice in the fact that we get to be at peace with you because of what Christ has done however much we do or do not understand it. Jesus paid that penalty for us. He's the, he's the gift. And all who believe in Him will never be put to shame. I rejoice in that fact. And we who are in Christ rejoice in that fact. And I pray that you would bring even more to yourself this morning that they also would rejoice in that fact, in salvation in Christ. So, Father, send us forth and bless us today. Help us to bless one another and rejoice in this salvation that is ours by faith alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.